Well, good morning and welcome to Windsor Road. My name is Jason Weatherholt, and I'm the Family Life Minister here. I'm privileged to be uh, stepping in for Randy, our Senior Minister, for a couple of weeks here this summer. And I wonder, I wonder what your favorite picture is. Okay, what's your favorite picture? And so maybe for you it is some famous work of art, or maybe it's a, a picture the family took together on a trip somewhere, or your favorite location, or, or a funny meme from Facebook, or something like that. What is, let's, let's have a few of us share. What is your favorite picture? Let's just give us a quick shout out. What's your favorite picture? Anybody? Kids. Your kids, all right. Picture the kids. Anybody else? Yeah. Your brother. Wow. That's a good brother right there. Oh, yeah. So a mission trip, a time when you're on a mission trip in another country and get to see, you know, uh, something caught in kind of, you know, action kind of, kind of caught on the film. What else? Favorite picture? Anybody? What's that? Nephew. Okay. Grandchildren. Wedding photo. That's great. Anybody else? A sunset. Yeah. We had that set actually in the other service too. I think there's just something powerful about that. Well, I had a couple I wanted to show you today. Uh, This probably won't surprise you. In my teenage years, I was not particularly drawn to art in any form whatsoever, paintings or anything like that. But in college, when they start to make you study some of those things, you know, you begin to develop favorites. And uh, so uh, for reasons I can't explain, I was always just really drawn to this piece of art here. This is the School of Athens by Raphael. Uh, There's a room where there are four frescoes on the wall. They each kind of represent a different, uh, they they portray a a different way man finds meaning in life. And this is man finding meaning through philosophy. And you've got uh, Plato pointing up and Aristotle pointing down. And it's just, I know there's just something about this fresco that I've always really loved. I've always thought it'd be super cool to to do this on like one wall of my office, wouldn't it? You know, to have somebody come in and just paint this on a wall of my office, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, anyway, this next one is, is just a really cool picture for me. It's, it's one of my favorites that I've ever had uh, for several reasons. Uh, the, this is uh, the wedding day for one of our best friends. Uh, it was a really cool opportunity for us to go back out to Colorado where we used to live, uh, be there in the mountains. This is in the Rocky Mountain National Park where this happened and everything. It was just awesome. This was, uh, this was the year I lost a ton of weight, and so I was excited. This was the first nice picture we took after I'd gotten a little healthier. And then I think, you know, if you can get a beautiful woman like that to stand next to you for 30 seconds, you take a picture to remember the event, right? So I just absolutely love that one. Uh, this next one... Um, this one is uh, the first time I had ever been to Disney in my whole life, okay? And we took the kids. It was a, just a great trip with, uh, with my wife's family. And, uh, and this was actually before we had even gotten to the parks yet, which is probably why everyone's still smiling at the same time, right? You know, <laughs> we were just at downtown Disney. We're taking a picture. And uh, incidentally, this is about 15 minutes before I sat on the camera that took this picture and broke it before the rest of the trip. But that's neither here nor there, I guess. And then this last one is, you know, for all of us pretend wannabe rock stars, I I had an opportunity, I get an opportunity here and there to play some music with some friends in town, and I just, this picture was taken somewhere, and it was was just a blast. Anyway, enough enough wannabe rock star. But um, pictures are powerful, aren't they? 
I mean, pictures just capture this moment in time, this moment of our lives, this, this, this whatever it is, they, they just capture something that is so incredibly powerful for us. And probably many of us remember, you know, the days, right, where we had sleeves and sleeves and sleeves of these little, you know, vinyl pockets that had your four by sixes or your five by sevens in them. And, you know, then they always had the negatives, you know, the film underneath. And every time you opened up your pictures, everything fell out and you had to put it all back in and all that kind of stuff. And then we created albums and scrapbooks full of pictures and memories. And now in today's, you know, world of technology, it seems like we don't develop nearly as many pictures as we used to, but it, but it seems to me like we take exponentially more pictures, right? I mean, we are just constantly making new folders and new albums on Facebook. And of course, with Instagram and everything else, there are pictures just flying around all the time. And it got me thinking, what is your picture of God? Okay, when you think about, <coughs> excuse me, when you think about your relationship with God, what is your picture of God? Maybe it's something you've seen along the way. Maybe it's an experience you've had. Maybe it's something that you always associate with what makes it feel like God's presence is with you. As soon as I asked myself that question, uh, for reasons I can't explain, this was the first picture that came to mind, okay? This is a Farside comic that was up in my stepdad's office when I was young. And it's God playing Jeopardy against Norman, the reigning champion here. And as you can see, God has a ton of points and Norman has zero. And, and I don't know what it is about this picture that has always been a part of me, my picture of God, about that all-knowing, that, that, you know, that, that being that is over everything. But I went to Google and I thought, let's do a Google search on pictures of God. And this is one of the first ones that came up. And I thought, how many of us is this true for? That your immediate picture of God is this wrath, you know, this, this, this being out there that's just looking to zap you if you make the wrong move at any point. Maybe we grew up in a house where that was kind of the philosophy or we grew up in a church that was like that or whatever else. We have this picture of God and his wrath, and his frustration with us, and his anger, and everything else. Or maybe it's this one, the, uh, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. You know, a, a painting that was done to symbolize our connection between God and man, but I think in a lot of ways, I almost feel like it's very telling of, of how our culture now feels like, you know, I reach out, and I reach out, and I reach out, and I can never quite grasp God. I can never quite touch. I wonder if maybe that begins to symbolize distance for you. It didn't take long doing the image search to, of course, come across uh, this uh, Monty Python image of, of God in the clouds and the argument that takes place in that movie. Or maybe it's this one. Maybe it's a little bit more like a genie, where you go to God to grant your wishes for the things that you want in your life. And your relationship with God mostly consists of you asking for things over and over and over again. That's where your conversation with him takes place. That's where you interact with God is when you are asking, what is your picture of God? And more importantly, how does that picture of God affect your relationship with him? I wonder how you think of God. I wonder how that impacts how you relate and spend time with God. I wonder how that impacts everything else. We're kicking off a new series this week, and we are calling it The Instagram Life, okay? If you don't know anything about Instagram, that's okay. We're not really going to talk about Instagram at all. What we are talking about is pictures of God. These, these things, these ways that we interact with God, the way we think about God. And, and it seems like nowadays we just take a picture of everything that matters to us. 
even our lunches sometimes, right? I mean, how many of you, like your news feed on whatever social network you're in, it's just constantly people shooting their food and putting it up there for you to see. And it's like, cool, you ate food, great. Okay? But we're going to look at some of our pictures of God. And the idea for this series, uh, we took our students a few weeks ago to, uh, our high school students, to CIY, to a conference uh, in Michigan. And, and while we were at this conference, I had actually had a totally different plan of what we would talk about the next three weeks. And, and I was just struck at this conference. They, were, they used Instagram as the vehicle they were going to use totally for the week to communicate with students. And they wanted people snapping pictures all the time and hashtagging. If you ever wonder what that little pound sign is that you see in front of words and stuff, people hashtag so that you could search those and everything. And so people were, you know, were using that Instagram for that purpose. And what we want to do this series, actually, is if you find something, if you come across a sunset or mountains or, or some other picture that reminds you of God's presence, and you're at one of those Instagram-type people, then take a picture of it, hashtag Windsor Road, and we're going to show some of these uh, throughout the series. In fact, we're actually considering even, uh, we're in the process right now of redoing the Windsor Road website, and one of the features that we're looking at right now is the ability to have a section where, uh, when, where photos with a hashtag go in a particular area so that we can have some of those kinds of things around. Well, we had one picture that had already been done, had already been hashtag Windsor Road. This was uh, from Tyler Yaunt. Uh, Tyler's one of our worship leaders here at Windsor Road and um, kind of had a worship experience on his way to church one week back in the spring, and uh, we found this tag this week. So anyway, if you use Instagram, take some pictures, hashtag them, and we'll uh, show them here on our weekend services. Pictures are powerful, are they not? Uh, we have two daughters. We have an eight-year-old daughter and a six-year-old daughter. And to most people, if they met our daughters, they would probably think our six-year-old daughter is pretty quiet. Okay, she doesn't really ever have to talk because our eight-year-old daughter talks for her all the time. In fact, if you came to our house, our eight-year-old daughter sometimes talks for the rest of us all the time, okay? And so our six-year-old oftentimes doesn't get to interact quite as much unless you sit down one-on-one with her, and then you will find that she is a storyteller. I mean, she just loves to talk and tell stories and share. And, and so we were, uh, last week, we were at junior high camp at Little Galley. My family went early because we had to set up some sound equipment and get things checked and all that kind of stuff. So we went on Saturday. We spent the night there. Sunday we went and visited a church in Bloomington. Then we came back to the camp, continued setting up, and then all the, the campers showed up. Well, on our way back from Bloomington, it was about a 45-minute drive from the church we went to uh, down to Little Galilee Camp, and it was uh, Elizabeth, and, or Elizabeth and me in the front, and then our two daughters in the back. And in between them was one of our college guys who was going to be playing in the worship band for camp, and he was riding with us. And so I thought, well, this will be fun, right? I turned around and I said, you know, Allie, our six-year-old Allie, the storyteller, I said, you know, Allie, Mr. Ben doesn't know anything about Tinkerbell 4, the fourth Tinkerbell movie. Some of you didn't even know there was a fourth Tinkerbell movie. We'll go get Allie out of class and bring her up here and let her tell you. So anyway, so Allie begins talking. Oh, it's the secret of the wings, and there are winter fairies, and, the, and then she's got a twin. And the, but if you go in the winter and your, your wings might break, and I mean, she's explaining Every bit of the Tinkerbell 4 movie for this college guy who I'm sure was, you know, could not have been more excited about this. Well, she gets done and she just moves on to explain Tinkerbell 3 to him. And 45 minutes later, with maybe some of my prodding, but 45 minutes later, she has explained all four Tinkerbell movies in reverse order to a college guy. And whenever she forgot details, our eight-year-old filled in and helped them out. You know, this, this poor guy was ready to get out of the car. 
But we always say this, that, that for Allie, it's like if, if Allie draws you a picture and you have three seconds to interact, you say, thank you for the picture, and you walk away. If you have three hours to interact, you say, please tell me about this picture because she just loves to tell stories because pictures are powerful, are they not? And they communicate so much. And I think our picture of God makes a huge difference in our relationship with him. If you view God as kind of that, that distant boss who doesn't seem to care what's going on in your life, well, that's going to that's gonna affect the way you relate to him. And we're going to talk about that in two weeks. And if you view God as some kind of angry judge who's just looking to, to pronounce judgment on you, well, that's going to impact what you take to him and what you want to interact about. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Today we're going to talk about that idea. If we just begin to look at God as this genie who grants our wishes. We're going to be in uh, the New Testament book of John. If you've got a Bible with you or you've got a Bible in the chair in front of you. Uh, John chapter 2 and then we'll show it on the screens. John is the fourth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And uh, the book of John is kind of different than the other three. We call, them, we call them the four Gospels, right? Gospel just means good news. It's the good news, the story of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are really kind of history lessons. They explain the details of what happened with Jesus. John is totally different from the other three. John is kind of framed around seven miracles that Jesus uh, that. that uh, uh, seven miracles that Jesus did along the way. And it's really kind of an opportunity for John to, to tell some, some non-Jewish, some non, you know, God's chosen people, kind of some other groups to say, listen, Jesus was the Messiah the Old Testament talked about. Now, Messiah is someone that, that God's people, the Jews, have come to believe that, that, that uh, you know, that God's going to send this one who is going to save us. That, that he is going to rescue us. That, that he is going to overthrow those who oppress us. That he's going to establish a new kingdom. That, that was what they had understood from the prophecies in the Old Testament. In some ways, they had even added to that the thought that he's going to be this conquering war kind of Messiah type person. And so you've got all of that going on. And, and John is trying to explain to others what it is and that Jesus is that Messiah who has come. So John chapter 2, verse 1. And, and here's, let me give you just a little, before we jump into that, let me give you a little context here. Okay, so Jesus has just called the first disciples. And, and he is beginning to teach, and he's beginning to travel, and all of that. But he's still got what we assume is probably a family obligation, right? He's still got a wedding that he's going to attend. And he attends with his disciples at this wedding. Well, first century weddings in Palestine, totally different than our wedding experience today. Okay, you know, nowadays, sometimes it seems like families will spend, you know, the, their, their life savings on a 20-minute on a ceremony and a four-hour party afterwards, right? I mean, there's a lot that goes into a very small window for us on weddings. In fact, uh, if any of you are, are uh, fans of the show Friends, Elizabeth and I used to watch Friends, there's this great line where Chandler and Monica are doing wedding planning in this, and they don't think they're going to have any money, but then Chandler has a bunch saved up, and, and, and Monica, his bride-to-be, wants him to use all the money on the wedding. And he says, I am not using our entire life savings on one party. And she says, if you keep calling it a party, you're not going to be invited to it. Okay, but, but it goes to show, right, that there's, there's a lot that goes into this one afternoon or evening event in our world. Well, weddings in their day are totally a different thing. If you're going to spend that much energy and everything on a wedding, then it's going to last a little bit longer. So for them, the engagement or betrothal was a whole lot more permanent than it is today. And you immediately began planning this big celebration that sometimes would last as much as a week. 
Okay? Um, And because of the importance of this, because it becomes kind of this community event, to dishonor a tradition, to not do something that was a key part of it, it was a huge, huge deal. In fact, sometimes had legal ramifications if you missed some important part of the wedding process and everything else. So, to be in the whittle of a wedding celebration and run out of wine would have been an enormous deal. So let's look at John chapter 2, verse 1. It says, On the third day... There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also visit, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So here's this big celebration and the absolutely unthinkable happens. You know, it's not like they just, not like they just run out of, you know, of, of party favors or something that's not important. They run out of the drink that everyone is having at this wedding. There's a big part of their celebration and it's a huge deal. There's going to be embarrassment. It's going to reflect poorly on people. Uh, and it's interesting that immediately Jesus' mother recognizes his power to do something about this. Now, certainly she was the one who was told she was going to bring into the world the Savior of the world, right? And yet, he's lived 30 years before really a lot of those signs are happening. And Jesus has 30 years of life, and then the last three years of his life are really his public ministry time. And so nowadays, you know, this kind of situation, mom comes to him, you know, some one of us might say something like, mom, you know, not in front of my friends, right? You're always asking me to do miracles in front of her. I don't know what we would have said. But Jesus' response is a whole lot more mature than that. Okay, and, and you, may see, you may see when he says, when he addresses her as woman, that may sound a little disrespectful in our language. It's actually a significant term of respect for Jesus. But he's not calling her mommy anymore. He's moving to a term of respect that basically the, the undertone of what he's saying is, my business is no longer about what you want me to do. It is about what my Father in heaven wants me to do. Okay, and he says, my hour has not yet come. He's talking about, he's looking forward, right? Throughout the Gospels, we're going to hear about my hour coming. It means that looking forward to the day of the cross when he's going to make this sacrifice for us. Now, what's interesting to me about this is um, mom comes to Jesus and says, uh, you need to do something about this. Jesus essentially seems to say no. She says to the servants, go prepare and do whatever he tells you to do, okay? Mama, mama doesn't really listen uh, to this. And Jesus goes ahead and does a miracle here, all right? Um, But I'm not sure sometimes that we relate all that differently to God than, than what happens in this story. Okay, I think we come to God so often with all these I want this kinds of statements, right? So we say things like, God, if you'll just get me out of this ticket, I will never speed again right? Isn't that what happens for us? We say, God, if you help me to pass this test, I will never ask for anything else so long as I live. We say things like, God, if you make sure that my parents never find this out, I will always be the perfect child forever and ever and ever, okay? Or we say things like, God, if you fix my marriage, I will never make that mistake again, We come to God with all these these issues, these messes oftentimes that we have created, and we go to him almost like a genie granting wishes to fix the situation that we're in. And and I don't want to minimize, obviously, obviously God cares 
deeply about you and what is on your heart. And I think nothing is too small or insignificant or petty or silly for you to take to God if it's something you care deeply about. Okay, what I wonder though is if we've sometimes reduced our relationship with God to that of, of a genie. I was going to show the, the uh, clip from Aladdin. You know, if you've seen the Disney movie Aladdin, I thought, I thought it'd be a fun clip to show today where he rubs the lamp and Jeannie comes out, you know, and it's that Robin Williams scene where he just goes crazy and, uh, and it's a ton of fun. But I thought, you know, I, I'm nervous that we're going to miss the seriousness of this because I think what we essentially say to God is, I'll follow you while I'm getting what I want. I will follow you while I'm getting what I want. And then as soon as that's taken care of, man, I'm on my own. I don't need you anymore until I mess it all up and then I'll come back and we'll talk again, okay? I wonder if that is what our relationship with God begins to look like. And I'm guessing we've all had those moments, right? I'm seeing head nods all over the room. I think we've all had these moments. I remember I was in high school. I was a junior in high school and we had a research paper uh, assigned to us in our history class. And so I picked a topic that I really, uh, really enjoyed studying. I was going to, actually, it was going to be about the Kennedy assassination. That was always something I enjoyed studying when I was in school. And so this research paper was enormous, right? Or at least as a junior in high school, I thought it was a huge paper. It was probably like eight pages or something. You know, I laugh at that now. But at the time, it seemed like an insurmountable task. And so I get the topic I want, I'm all set, and then I just do nothing on the paper. You been there? Okay, I just procrastinated and I did absolutely nothing. Well, we're coming closer and closer to the deadline of the paper I've done nothing for and I'm like, oh no, what am I gonna do? Now, I know it's easy for you to sit right now and say, start on your paper, right? You know, I mean, the answer seems obvious now, but at that time, for some reason, that didn't seem like the obvious answer. What seemed like a more obvious answer was I found a friend of ours who, uh, whose sister had done a paper in previous years on the same topic, So copying that paper seemed a lot easier than writing my own, right? You know, why are none of you agreeing with me? (laughs) So that's what I did. And I didn't think I told anybody about this, but apparently I did or she did or whatever, because we get to the day before the paper's due. I sit down in class next to my best friend in class, and, uh, and he looks over at me, and he was a football player, and the teacher of the class was one of the football coaches, and he says, I don't know how Mr. Benton knows but he knows that you copied the paper. And if you turn that in tomorrow, you're gonna get suspended from school because there are quite a few people who have copied their papers and anyone who does that's gonna get a suspension. Well, that got my attention. Unfortunately, that night I was working at my part-time job and so it was like, well, I don't know what I'm gonna do. And so I, I spent as much time in the back room at work that I could working on it. I stayed up most of the night, I think reworking and, you know, going over this paper and making changes and and all that kind of stuff. I ended up turning in this big apology note at the beginning of the paper that explained what I had done and was trying to seek grace and all that kind of stuff. And I didn't end up with a suspension, but I did end up with a, a pretty strong note back and a pretty abysmal grade on it. And I remember in that moment, you know, over the course of the night, I'm staying up redoing a paper that I could have just done easily um, weeks earlier. I remember begging God to let me out of the situation. You know, please just do something about this. And I look back at that experience and, I, and I'm fairly confident God just flat said no. Because I think God knew me well enough to know 
that if he had just erased my mistake and moved on, I never would have learned from the experience. I needed to absolutely bomb a major, major assignment and have to do the the humility and everything else of admitting to it for me to learn never, ever to do something like that again. And I think that's true for us. See, God cares about what's on your heart, but his central concern is you spending eternity with him in heaven. God cares about anything that you would ask for him, but what he cares about is you going to heaven. You might say it this way, God cares less about granting your wishes than he does granting his wish, which is eternity for you. Well, verse six says this, we'll pick it back up. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Okay, so, so there's great symbolism happening here in this account, okay? These, these jars that were used for their religious purification practices and everything else, Jesus is going to show power over them. And Jesus is going to ultimately end up filling them with what later wine will later represent his blood. Excuse me, in the Last Supper. So six jars, 20 to 30 gallons a piece. I was trying to do, you know, the best way that I could to show that. And I thought, what if we came in here and, and, and we put 180 uh, jugs of milk up here on the stage just to get kind of an understanding of what 180 gallons might look like in one place. Or I thought a dunk tank, okay? That's about a third to half of what is in a dunk tank. I just, the sheer volume of this miracle, I think it's sometimes lost on us and we just pass over these words. This is an enormous, enormous task, an enormous thing that he does. Verse eight says, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tested the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, uh, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So he tells the host, and the host basically has an issue on, on party planning, right? You know, he says, why, why, don't, why would you not follow the normal custom? That, that you would, when people's palates are more sensitive and, and they're more uh, aware of what's happening, why wouldn't you serve the good stuff then? And then when, when people have already had their fill or whatever, they're in good spirits or everything else, you'd, you'd come later and serve the cheap stuff, but you save the best for last. And I just love this because this is the same Jesus who's going to calm a storm, right? This is the same Jesus who's going to heal people from issues they have had since birth. And even when he makes wine, he makes the best stuff around. I mean, his power to do anything in any situation like this is incredible to me. And there's much bigger symbolism going on for what he does, but I love the small part of this. That the same Jesus who cares about the poor and the destitute and cares about your salvation also cares about the embarrassment of some of his friends at a wedding. I mean, isn't that incredible? Doesn't that give you confidence to take whatever is on your heart to him, to have conversations with God about what is going on and what you truly care about in life and what concerns you? Well, verse 11 says, this was the first, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And I'm guessing if you've been to a wedding along the way, you probably have heard this miracle referenced in a wedding because Jesus' presence at a wedding, you know, shows that he affirms the institution of marriage. And his miracle there shows that he cares. But verse 11 gives us this this glimpse into the significance of this. It's not a miracle about wine. 
is about his disciples believing in who he says he is. And it is about the beginning of his public ministry that is going to change the world forever. Like we said, there is just rife with symbolism, okay? You've got Jesus the Messiah, Jesus unveiling that he is the Son of God, the Savior. You've got water being turned into wine. Again, remember, at the Last Supper, Jesus is going to use wine to symbolize his blood, the the commitment that he made for us. These stone jars that were used for purification rites are being used to to carry Jesus. Again, what we symbolize is Jesus' blood in them. And he begins to reveal his identity, something he'll only confirm in the next three years of ministry. So again, we ask, what's your picture of God? What is your picture of God? Or maybe it's more accurate to say, how's your relationship with God these days? Has your life become more about what God could do for you than what he has already done for you? Has our life become more about all the requests that we take to God every day? Oh, do this, do that, don't do that. Please take care of this situation. As opposed to reflecting on what he has already done for us. See, he gave us Jesus 2,000 years ago. God sent his son to this earth to die on a cross for our sins. And Jesus didn't come to grant temporary wishes. He came to give salvation forever. And if that's something you have never considered before, we would love to talk with you today. Our staff members will be around. We'll have elders who come down front after the services to pray with people. There is a tub full of water. If you have never considered, never considered a relationship with Jesus, why not? Why not today? And if you've already committed your life to him, then maybe it's time for all of us to do a better job of living like him. See, I think if we keep skipping around with sometimes this inch deep, ask for whatever I want in the moment, look for a quick fix kind of faith, how could we ever expect that anyone outside the walls of this building would be interested in learning more about it? I mean, is anyone else ever going to be attracted to some faith that doesn't seem to change your life all that much? Real faith involves doing what we're told to do in our Bible and then allowing God to do what only he can do in our lives. I don't know about you, um, but it seems like this is true in my life and it's true the more lunch appointments and coffee meetings I have with other people. It seems like this has been a difficult season for a lot of us. It seems like a lot of us here in our church family have just been going through some of the toughest stuff they have gone through in a long, long time. I seem to hear stories about it, and I know in my own life, it has just been a struggle lately. I remember last weekend, um, uh, Elizabeth and our older daughter Katie were gone in Texas at a wedding, and so it was just me and Allie, our youngest, you know, daddy-daughter weekend, have fun, all that kind of stuff. We did. We had a blast. And then we came in on Sunday morning, and poor Allie had to get up early to be here with me, super early. And, and uh, we're going through the morning, and I, I knew, you know, I had these three weeks coming of, of, uh, of speaking the main service and some other projects. And I thought, okay, I get one week to just kind of breathe. You know, it'll just be nice and easy for one week. And then it just seemed like it was thing after thing last Sunday that came up. 
And we finally ended up having one of our worship leaders got so sick he couldn't even lead worship and had to head out. And so I ended up stepping in another room. By, by the beginning of the nine o'clock service, I was just exhausted, okay? I don't know if you've had this before, but I just, I'm kind of having a pity party. I'll be totally honest with you. I was just frustrated. And I sit down right over here and Kevin Jackson gets up to speak. And what does he begin talking about? Spiritual warfare and Satan's attacks against us. And I went, oh, I get, I get it now. I finally get it. And I don't know how many of you have been feeling that way for a long time. For how many of you that this week has just been a tough, tough week. I had a friend on staff send me a text on Friday and said, you know, you doing okay? I know some, you know, struggling and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I said, to be honest, at this point, like, Satan's attacks are almost becoming laughable. They're so obvious at this point. I don't know if you feel that way. It's like, yep, that's another attack. I see that coming because they're constant and I see them all the time. And we ask why, but I, to me, the answer is obvious. I am more excited than I have ever been about the season that we are entering here at Windsor Road. I mean, I'm stoked. If you've been down lately in our children's area, I mean, we're just out of space down there. You know, you can barely check in more kids because we've, we've got to have more space. And so we're in the conversations about what it looks like to add space and more facility and be able to do better things and, and do the ministry that we do and take it to the next level. I'm excited about that. We're getting ready this fall to talk about what generosity looks like here, both in our finances, but then in our whole life. What does it look like for each of us to take it seriously and be more generous in the ways that we live? Last week at our week of junior high camp, we had, uh, this is the first time I've ever seen this at Little Galley, okay? They only have 172 beds. They closed the week a week before it started because we could not accept any more people. We ended up having something like 190 there and they started farming out faculty to stay in other rooms, other places and things like that because we just wanted as many kids to come and hear about Jesus as we possibly could. God is doing amazing things. So why would Satan not be interested in targeting this place and your life? And to me, that's just the kind of season that we're entering into that it's just gonna be tough. Because I can't imagine that Satan is excited about the good things that are going on in this place. But at the end of it all, I want us to remember Jesus' miracle at this wedding in Cana. It was not about wowing us with his huge, incredible, miraculous power. It was about inspiring us to seek him as the Savior. See, whatever your picture of God, whatever you bring into this place, whatever is going on in your life, whatever struggles you have, whatever your picture of God, if you seek out his son, I promise it will change everything. Let's pray. God, watch over us. I know from the conversations I have, so many of us, God, are just struggling, just trying to figure out sometimes how to make it through another week. God, comfort those of us who are just struggling and pushing through. God, I pray that you work in those situations here for people in this room, that you would work in their lives, that you would put the people in their path that they need to have. And for many in our church who are just celebrating because life is is the best it's ever been. God, help to challenge 
those of us in that boat. Help to challenge those people to be a light in the lives of others. God, we know that you are about more than just the business of granting our wishes. We know that it's about your ultimate wish that we would spend eternity with you. So God, work on our hearts where we're at to bring us back to you. In Jesus' name, amen.